It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, June 18th, the Let's Talk to Your Kids About Racism edition. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, a communications consultant, newbie screenwriter, and mom to Naima, who is seven. We live in Los Angeles, California. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm mom to three littles, Henry eight, Oliver six, and Teddy three, and I am in Navarre, Florida. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I can't believe I also have kids named Henry and Teddy, along with one of the co-hosts of this podcast. I am mom to Henry, who is 18, going on 19, Teddy, who is 17, and my wonderful stepdaughter, Lily, who just turned 20 this week. Well, Rebecca, we're so glad to have you back this week. You agreed to fill in for Dan a while ago, and it just so happens that you're here on the show where we're going to be talking about all things racism. Can't wait. We talk about it all the time. I honestly can't wait. I'm super excited about it. I've been getting so many questions from people who know me, like from a former parenting podcast persona about this. Mm-hmm. I freaking love talking about it. So I am down. Thank you for having me on. And for most of you out there listening, you are probably aware that we wanted to set aside a show to focus on the current worldwide conversation about racism, police violence, and equality. There's been a recent uptake in activism inspired by the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. And it's resulted in sustained Black Lives Matter protests in all 50 states, which is incredible. As a result, people have a renewed sense of urgency when it comes to addressing issues of racism within their own lives. And that includes parents who are figuring out how to talk to their children about systemic institutionalized racism, something that a lot of parents have either chosen not to talk about with their children in the past, haven't felt like they had to talk to their children about these things in the past, or simply did not know how. This is, of course, a conversation that Black parents and other parents of color have had to navigate for centuries. So today, all of our questions are going to be concerning race, privilege, and policing. But before we get started, we, of course, have our triumphs and fails. Rebecca, why don't you start us out? Do you have a triumph or a fail on your return to the show? I've got so many things I could catch you all up on. I was trying to think about what I was going to talk about this week. There's just a lot going on in my kids' lives and my life, and it's been a long time since I've been here. But then I passed uh, upstairs in my kitchen the sign that my son Henry had made to bring to a student-led Black Lives Matter event happening in our tiny New Hampshire town tonight. And so my triumph is, A what he decided to do with his sign, which is super janky, by the way, he made on a pizza box, but also the conversation we had about it. So he took this pizza box and I have this on my Instagram. You can see it there. I also tweeted about it uh, at Reb Lavoie if you want to check it out. And on the outside of the pizza box, so if he holds it closed, it just says defund the police, you know, a slogan, which I think, you know, even 
people who don't understand what it means, I think it's easy to coalesce around the fact that it's an amazing slogan because everybody is talking about it, which is kind of the point of a really, really great slogan for protest. But in the inside of the box, he's chosen to target his favorite racist, Ben Shapiro. And he posted this little photo of Ben Shapiro on the inside with a meme that says, facts don't care about your feelings, which I guess is something that Ben Shapiro says. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't waste 30 seconds of my life listening to Ben Shapiro. And then he made this big screed, which I will show you guys on his sign. I'll see if you can yeah. see it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Which sort of belies the point of a sign to hold a bit of protest. It's not easy to read. Oh, Responding to Ben Shapiro, who, uh, he says, Ben Shapiro, professional opinion haver. Okay, Ben, here are some facts. In Minneapolis, 19% of the population is black, yet they're on the receiving end of 58% of police use of force incidents. Black men are two and a half times more likely to be killed by police than white men. Innocent black people are 12 times more likely to be wrongly convicted of drug crimes. I'm sure if he had more space, he would have gone on and on and on. But this led to an interesting conversation. He went on a walk with me this morning with our dog. And uh, I was just like, why are you targeting that guy? <laughs> and he really like did this like really interesting job of just sort of talking about, and this is the thing that we talk about a lot in our house, the extra toxicity of smart white people who have just monetized hate and being mean. And we talked about Ben and Henry's whole thing about Ben Shapiro is that too many reasonable people think he's a credible source to listen to, to mm -hmm. hear another side. And Henry is like the problem with Ben Shapiro in particular, aside from all of his views, which I disagree with and which are virulent, is that he's just the opposite of nice in, at every given opportunity. He takes every opportunity. And he told me about an interview that Ben Shapiro did with a trans woman who had served in the military who had lost a leg uh, as a fighter pilot or something. And how, you know, Ben just felt the need to be like, well, why do you think you need to like win an award for being trans when, you know, I self-actualize all the time. And Henry, my wonderful, super woke and still learning son said, mom, there are a ton of things I don't understand about social justice. And I have a lot of questions about things when I come across something I don't understand. But the one thing I do understand is just basic niceness that when like someone comes on your virulent podcast and, you know, it wants to engage you in like a reasonable conversation, that the first thing you don't do is try to one up them by talking about your stupid college frat boy self-actualization when they're pouring their heart out to you. And he's like, so for me, that like gets him to my top of my toxic list. And that's why I chose to put him in the inside of my pizza box, because not only is he horrible and racist and monetizing it, but he's also not particularly nice. So I'm very proud of my son for having that well-rounded view of the guy he put on his protest. Yeah, I love that. My kids are obviously much younger, but had a like <laughs> sim similar ability to have a conversation in making the signs for our, there was like a kids rally here held by the Young Philosophers Society. And just having them sit down to make the signs was such a great opportunity. Like we're all doing art and that's something we do together, but to like talk about what we want to put on these signs and why we want to do that. And since there are three of them and obviously Teddy, who's little has no idea, you know, he just like wants to paint the whole thing, all the different colors. He's like, I'm painting this all the colors. We're like, that's great. But decided on painting, like we hear you, we see you, we stand with you. Like we being the three of them that they feel like they together can help by bringing other people into them. And I thought, what a like lovely thing for a seven and a five-year-old to be talking about and to launch that conversation and having them process why they're 
out there standing there talking about things and why, you know, their advocacy matters. So I think that's like just so lovely to have that opportunity and get to see kind of like our kids' hearts in that way. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. We appreciate you for raising the next generation of white men because the current ones aren't working out so well for us. So Sorry, Dan. You. You're Sorry. <laughs> Dan's doing his best. Dan's doing his best. Um, okay, Elizabeth, what about you? Do you have a triumph or a fail this week? I have a triumph. So I am my middle child, Oliver. So it's easy to talk about him because we won't get confused about uh, whose child. But so Oliver loves like pink and purple and unicorns and ice cream and all of these things. And we can never find boys clothes with those things on it. It is like a constant challenge. He is always, anytime I take him anywhere and I, there's a couple brands that like do okay, but their limited production really don't allow for a whole lot of options and buying girls clothes. I mean, the girls clothes, I mean, you both have girls, like they're all cut so different that they really don't fit his body or I'm asking him to choose this girl cut girl thing, you know, with this thing you like, or this thing that is like boy cut, but has stuff you don't like. I've just really struggled with this. And I find too, like choosing clothes in the morning has kind of been like, I don't, whatever, I don't care. But when he has like one shirt that he loves, he is so excited when the optionists wear it. So for my birthday, my parents had gotten, I love to craft, got me the like Cricut little cutting machine. And I discovered that I can like cut out my own vinyl stuff and order t-shirts and have just made him a little wardrobe of all the things he likes. He went with me to the, the online craft store to pick out the different shirts. And then we talked about what he wanted. And now he has this little wardrobe of shirts that are things he loves and colors he loves. And he's so excited. And he picked out things like kindness matters and asked for a pig pink unicorn, which is the thing he's into. And I was just able to make that happen. Because at six, I feel like what you wear is like one of the few things you have absolute control over. And so to be able to give him things that he's excited about wearing and that he has chosen and that fit who he is feels like very satisfying as a mom and seeing him happy about that. I love it. I love those iron-on vinyl things. I love them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I To this day, my kids still make their own clothes. Henry, who I just talked about, is this like perfect kid. When he was in high school, made a shirt of just his own face with one of those. <laughs> and it was just like him right below him. And it was so stupid, but so funny, that. you know? That's funny. I saw a picture on Twitter recently of a girl getting her, she was at a tattoo parlor, it was an older picture, with her boyfriend, and he was getting her name tattooed on her, but the best part was that she was also wearing a shirt with her name on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I aspired to that level of self-involvement. <laughs> She's involved other people in her own self-involvement. <laughs> pretty great. Oh, God. I love that. I think that's wonderful, Elizabeth. He's very lucky to have those shirts. And, and the cuts are such a, it's weird. We haven't tried. I mean, I'm definitely guilty of going toward things that are coded for girls for Naima quite often. At this point, it's a response to what she's interested in, you know, so I know what things yeah. that are marketed toward boys she'll like. And I know that, you know, typically the things that are pushed toward girls she would prefer. But when she was younger, we tried really hard to experiment with, you know, quote unquote boy clothes. And yeah, so often like the cuts are off and different. It's just, you know, like a girl's shirts don't always have to have those little delicate sleeves either. That little cap sleeve situation. Yeah. Like it's not always the most comfortable thing for them. They're kids. 
Yeah, if he wanted to wear that, it would be fine. Yeah. The issue is he wants, you know, a shirt like he sees his brother wearing or whatever. It's more comfortable, yeah. but he wants it to be pink or light blue or one of these colors that boys clothes are just not always made available in. Yeah, and boys clothes also just suck a little bit in general. So many dinosaurs. So many dinosaurs. Right? Like they don't all love dinosaurs. I mean, this could be a whole other. <laughs> yeah. right? Okay, but so Jamila, yes. triumph or fail? I have a triumph this week. Really, I didn't do anything. Well, I did a lot of things, but it's not my triumph. But Naima is officially a second grader. First wow. grade is it's Yay. over. She made it through. They had spirit week via Zoom. So the kids wore different, you know, cool outfits every day. And there was a closing ceremony for the year on Friday on Zoom. And each kid, she was with her dad. So I'm going to assume they were each given some sort of superlative. <laughs> Sorry. I know. I, I was deeply interested. I really wanted to be. I went up there because I'm not a regular mom, the cool mom. Um, I went to her dad's house the day of the ceremony. I wanted to watch it. I had back-to-back Zoom calls like starting like 30 minutes later. So I ran over there, but I brought her and her brother Target gift cards to congratulate them for finishing first grade in kindergarten. So I'm making up for my absence uh, <laughs> in, the way, in the way that I can. <laughs> but um, So I'm going to assume that all the kids got some sort of superlative from the teacher because I saw the one that was placed in Naima's class dojo folder. And it's a certificate and it says ambitious activist and it has her name on it and a fist. And her teacher wrote, Naima, the progress you made this year is incredible. I'm so proud of you for all of your hard work, your excitement for learning and the kindness that you showed to everyone in our class. You'll do amazing things in second grade and beyond. I can't wait to listen to a Naima podcast in the future. Oh, what part of that makes you the proudest? It's the kindest part, isn't it? The kindest part. The kindest part for sure. Me too. I was like, wow, This isn't Naima's certificate. Is there a different Naima? (laughs) But she really, you know, she she gives her parents a hard time sometimes and her brother. But she is really a very sweet girl. And it especially shows when she's dealing with her peers. She's just so thoughtful and so sensitive to their feelings. It's really something to watch. So I'm very proud of her for stepping on up into second grade. Without even Yay. having to, without having to step foot <laughs> in the classroom for four yes. months, she made it. Oh. So best social promotion ever. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Before we move on, let's do a little business. As a reminder, Slate's parenting newsletter is the best place to be notified of all of our parenting content. In fact, it's the only place to be notified about all of our parenting content, including mom and dad are fighting, care and feeding, and so much more. It's a fun personal email from Dan and on occasion other Slate contributors. Each week, it's in your inbox, keeping you abreast of all our cool stuff. So please sign up for it. It's slate.com backslash parenting email. And actually, the email is not the only place to stay up on all things Slate Parenting, because you can go to the Facebook page, Slate Parenting. It's a super active community. I tap in every once in a while, say something, and then like, just disappear (laughs) into the wind. And it's well moderated, so it never gets out of control. And there is a live Karen feeding show with Nicole Cliff. So to catch it, go to Slate's Parenting page on Facebook on Tuesdays at 11 Eastern, and you can find previous episodes on Slate's YouTube page. In Slate Plus today, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Kira Banks about complexion bias. Here's a quick sneak peek of what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. As a young man and the young women as well, like the world might perceive you in some ways, and that's going to lead to differential experiences and, and to be willing to notice that and point it out, but also to make sure that they have the agency to self-identify. They get to identify how they want to identify. And oftentimes when you have multiracial families, kids are made to feel like they have to choose you want to make sure that that you don't make them feel like they have to make a choice or pick. So I think it's a matter of being open. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. It's only $35 for your first year. And as you probably know, a lot of media companies are struggling right now. Slate is certainly no exception. And so now more than ever, we'd really appreciate your direct support for all of our entertaining content and important journalism. In addition to ad-free podcasts, Slate Plus members won't hit a paywall on the site so you can enjoy all of Slate's journalism without worrying if you've reached your article limit. So if you'd like to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, please do. Go to slate.com backslash Mom and Dad Plus and join Slate Plus today. So we're going to get started with our listener questions. And as I mentioned earlier, we have a special guest who's here to offer some sage advice. Trina Green-Brown, who is the founder and executive director of Parenting for Liberation, which is a virtual platform for Black parents. And she's also an activist and a mom to two children. I'm so excited to have you here, Trina. I found out about your platform when a mutual comrade of ours recommended you for the show, and I am over the moon. So thank you so much for joining us for this important conversation, and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Honored to be here in, in this conversation with you all as parents and as we're navigating this moment. And shout out to Salamisha Tillett and A Long Walk Home for the invitation and making the connection. Yes, the brilliant Salamisha Tillett, who uh, I'm sure we'll hear from on the show at some point. because she's Definitely. Absolutely fabulous. Okay, so we've gotten quite a few questions recently about discussing race and racism with children. We're going to start off with one, and it's being read, as always, by the fabulous Shasha Leonard. Hi, Mom and Dad are Fighting. My husband and I have three children. 
ages 9, 4, and 20 months. Through books, school, celebrations, and ongoing conversations, we work hard to instill values of tolerance and kindness in our children. We reinforce the idea of equality, regardless of skin color, gender, sexual orientation, religion, ability, or other differences. We have had surface conversations with only our oldest child about racism, as we discuss the killing of George Floyd, the protests, and the movement that these events have galvanized. It was difficult for her to even grasp why anyone, let alone a police officer, would intentionally hurt another person, especially based on race. Her incredulity speaks to her innocence, but also her position of privilege. I'm grappling with how to introduce her, and eventually our younger kids, to the implications of systemic racism and why it is so important that these systems are dismantled. If I'm honest, I can say that although I don't hold racist attitudes, I have benefited from racist systems, a viewpoint to which I was blissfully ignorant until well into adulthood. Like many of your listeners, it is important that I raise conscious and mindful citizens. I want them to eventually understand the vicious impact of institutional racism. How do I introduce these complex but important concepts to young children, and what advice might you have, beyond protesting, for what we can do to address them as a family? Trina, I would like to start with you. And I just have to add, as a former Black child, current Black parent, it is really kind of overwhelming how little even conscientious, thoughtful folks have been speaking to their children, or some, I should say, have been speaking to their children about racism specifically, because she, you know, the parent says that they have talked about tolerance and kindness and equality, but you wouldn't necessarily have to talk about equality with your children, were there not racism, were there not homophobia, were there not all these, these other um, awful systems of inequity? And so how would you recommend that someone who has somehow managed to talk about equality and, and kindness with their kids for all this time to now have to introduce the concept of racial animus? Oh, that's a good question. I think you're right, right? It's heavy as, as Black folks, right, being tapped at this time to be like, how do we do it? Um, and it's it's a lot of labor on our part. So I will name that. First off, I feel like the conversations that this parent has been having with their child around equality is not rooted in the conversation around equity. And I think when you start to talk about equity, you have to name the fact that certain people in this country um, and across the world, it's not even explicit to US, but certain people are impacted by systems of oppression in ways that other people aren't. If you name it as equality, it's like everyone's equal and we're all treated the same. And that's not really the way that this country operates. And so how do we talk to our children about equity, right? Which is less about each person getting the same thing. It's really about what are the root causes that limit access for certain bodies of people or certain groups of people to certain systems, right? And I think I I could appreciate this parent for naming um, later down in their question that they experience privilege and they benefit from privilege. And I think that is the best entry point is to go from your own lived experience, right? And so if this parent can share with their child, like I've benefited from these systems or I've benefited um, from having white skin or from being white presenting and the way that I'm treated when I go to shop or what the way that I'm treated when it's time to buy a house, right? Or the way that I have access in educational systems or even on the job that I get these different privileges because I have white skin that, that other folks do not get access to. And I think being able to tell those stories to our children, similar to how like black folks have to share our stories with our children, right? I have to tell my child my experience of, 
of being called out of my name or not necessarily getting access to things because of because I'm black. Right. I have to explain those stories so that I can pre- prepare my children for potentially experiencing racism. And so I think that white folks need to be preparing their children for how they might experience preferential treatment or experience white privilege and actually to name it and not just make it seem like, oh, it just happens. Like I just actually got this job or I just bought this house or, you know, like things just come to me. It's not by luck or it's not by happenstance, right? It's systematically set up that way. And I think when we tell our children utilizing stories, it's more helpful and stories that are rooted in our personal experience. Because then you don't have to be an expert about all the concepts, right? You're just able to situate your own lived experience within a larger context of racism. Rebecca, I'm curious to hear how you started this conversation with your children, with you having junior adults at this point. How old were they when you started talking to them about racism? Uh, Very, very young. Uh, I would say as soon as we could talk. And there's a reason for that. And I should explain, like, I grew up in a very integrated place. And I moved to New Hampshire, which is not an integrated place, when I was in my early 20s. And I can confidently say it is a racist place. I think white places without a lot of people of color where everyone thinks that they're well-meaning and not racist end up being sometimes more racist. I've had arguments with people where they're like, you got, you really think Boston is more racist than like places in the Deep South? I'm like, I do. And here's why. Because the casual racism that infuses our lives all the time and goes unchecked because people think no one will care or no one will hear it or who cares is so much more poisonous in the long term than uh, when I was a kid growing up in a community that was like 35% white. If a kid said a racial epithet in school, said the N-word, made some sort of offhanded comment that they had heard from their uncle or whatever, they got in trouble. Like, they got to send to the office. Uh, It was like a community, like, rift. Like, they would, it was a thing. And here, it's like, let's have a quiet talk and not talk about it again. And that's a freaking problem. So the one thing that I tell people all the time is, and I don't understand why, you know, growing up as a kid in the 70s and early 80s, I got this, but it doesn't exist now, is this sort of tender footing around skin color with little kids and discrimination and racism and hate and violence. Parents of a two-year-old have no problem intervening when their kid hits another kid on the playground or they talk about biting or they talk about other behaviors that are ugly that they don't want them to bring into three years old with them and four years old. But they never talk about a thing that if you're a black kid, you can't escape and you know about from the time you're born. So I do think that you have to understand as a parent of white kids and especially in a predominantly white place that parents of black kids and black kids themselves don't have a choice other than to talk about this from the moment they can start talking, why people treat them differently, why some stores like where I grew up have a doorbell ringing system just so you can be let in. The answer is because they're making a judgment based on what you look like, whether to let you in or not. These are conversations that um, people of color can't escape. So I think it is inherently supporting privilege and in some ways supporting the systemic white supremacy we have in this country to let little white kids escape it until we think they're old enough to understand. So when my kids were very, very little, I just always remembered segments on Sesame Street, which for some reason didn't seem radical in the 70s, shows like Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, where adults would say to kids and puppets, 
Some people hate people because of the color of their skin. Some people hurt people or kill people because of the color of their skin, and that's wrong. And if you see someone saying something, if you see someone hurting someone, if you see someone doing anything, just like if your friend is being hit, you need to intervene because it's wrong. To be fair, like, that's just sort of how I started. And I remember, like, people telling me, aren't they too young or whatever. I just, I don't think you can give your kids a pass just because they're not black from having them hear about the thing that if you are a black kid, you know about from the moment you're conscious. So that's how I think about it. I think it's great that you're talking to your nine-year-old. Start talking to your four-year-old. You got some catching up to do and start talking to your 20-month-old as soon as they're able to have a conversation with you. Do not delay. One of the major stumbling blocks that white parents have is not like thinking of this as like a, a thinking of addressing racism as this like topic at some point that you will become an age at which to address when there are so many other things. Like when I think about like the list of things that we teach our children from the beginning about like good food and taking care of our bodies and like recycling and things like that. And then when you really come to think about why then would treating other humans not be part of that list? especially because your kids give you so many opportunities to have this conversation. They notice people, they notice what's going on. And when they're little, they ask about it. And I think that there is this hesitancy. And I can say that because I have definitely felt the anxiety that comes up when your child says like, why does that person look like this? Or why do you look different? All of those conversations. But I think that you have to, as a white parent, be able to open that into this conversation. And those conversations happen less or feel less awkward if like your home library is full of books in which people are of different colors. And I'm not talking about like getting a book on Martin Luther King. I'm talking about that some of your princess books, the princesses are not white. Some of your books about engineers and astronauts and whoever else, those people are not white. Like it's important to study the black historical figures or, you know, really of any color, but it is also important that the everyday people that they are seeing, and if you can't do that because of where you live or whatever that situation is, you have control over the media that your children are exposed to. I mean, I, I, can I have a question for you? Like, I even read this question and it, and I'm, it's not the letter writer in her fault. I mean, she's doing her best. That's what we're saying right now. Everybody's in their best, or if maybe. But like, even when you have somebody writing in a question about being able to choose when to talk to their kids about things, like, it, do they understand that that is privilege? You get to choose at what age <laughs> you you just you get to yeah. choose the form. You get to choose your moment. Like that is the privilege right there is that you get to write to a podcast and ask us how to choose like that. Yeah. I mean, with, it pisses me off. I can't imagine how it must make a black woman who's the mother of a black child feel. I mean, I'm curious. Is that do you ever get angry when you read questions like this? And this is I, I don't want to make it personal about this this earnest person you wrote to. We us. did ask these people to write it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it pisses me off. I imagine it pisses you off. Am I right or wrong about that? I'll say for me, and I'm, I'm curious to hear what Trina has to say. I'm tired of it. It doesn't piss me off because at the very least, they're saying that they want to have the conversation, you know. And I've so often come across, you know, white folks who've said. I teach my children not to see race, 
right? That pisses me off. So it, it's refreshing to hear, you know, even, you know, like so much of what's happening now with, with corporations and celebrities coming forward and folks are saying like, well, this is pandering. I'm like, do you realize no one felt that they even had to pander to us before? Just this baseline level of, of recognition and acknowledgement of our struggles can't you can't help but to feel like there's a level of win here or progress because the bar has been so low because it's been completely acceptable like six years ago when black lives matter first entered the national lexicon i remember very clearly how different these conversations were right i remember how readily you know even a lot of black folks in the public eye felt the need to redirect to all lives matter and to, you know what I mean? And at a sense of perhaps pressure, you know, to maintain their public personas or because they didn't feel comfortable even themselves saying something that sounded so quote unquote radical, even though it's not radical at all to say that somebody's life matters. That is literally the lowest form of acknowledgement that you can give to a human being is to say that their life matters, right? That doesn't mean that everything that a life should have comes with it. You're just simply saying your life matters. So yes, I, it is tiring to know that I was not able to tap out of this conversation. And there are Black parents who do attempt to shield their children from the pain of racism. And Trina, I want to ask you about that next, um, or to wait as long as possible or to sanitize these conversations um, down to a point where they leave their children perhaps open to being terribly surprised or overwhelmed when they're able to really grasp the level to which racism controls the world and so many of the experiences that they'll have. So, Matrina, I wanted to hear, because I think because Black parents have to have this conversation, right? We don't have long before our children will start to notice that things are different for them um, than they are for, for white people. But with that, that also doesn't mean that we all know how to have the conversation. You know, that we're not all race experts just because we, we are experts on the, the lived experiences that we've had, but we are not all trained in doing this work in a way that always makes it easy for us to effectively communicate to our children about both our struggles, but also our beauty and our power. So with that, for Black parents that are struggling in this moment, do you have any tips for affirming the self-esteem and, and the personal worth of our children and the richness of our history, while also making them aware of the world in which they were born in a way that is clear so that they're not surprised? Great question. Yeah. And I do want to just answer, I think it was Rebecca's question, like, are we pissed off? Right. Um, I feel like I'm sad that I feel a little bit of gratitude that this parent is asking the question, right? Like, they're like, oh, I'm grateful that you're actually at that place of asking the question about how can I do it? It's sad that I actually have to have gratitude for that, right? I think what I am frustrated about in this moment is the fact that folks are saying, okay, I want to talk about it, but it feels scary or or I have anxiety about it. It's like, what? You have anxiety because you have to talk to your child about privilege? Do you know the anxiety that Black people feel to have to talk to their children about murder and death and violence? The white fragility around these conversations is what pisses me off. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, why is this scary? <laughs> why is this scary? Why is this hard? And so that is the frustrating part for me. Connected to this piece about Black folks having to talk to their children about, you know, what does it mean to be Black in the United States of America? I will definitely name that that's part of the reason why I started this organization, because I was not doing it well. I was definitely having these conversations that were not age level. I was definitely talking over my three-year-old's head in ways that were 
making him fear what it means to be black, right? Um, making him feel like, well, this doesn't seem like a good body to be in. And I knew that that was not the, the way I wanted to engage my children. And so when I do this work, I hearken the great Audre Lorde who says that raising black children in the mouth of a racist and sexist and suicidal dragon is perilous and chancy. If they cannot love and resist, they probably will not survive. And so all of the work that I do in talking to my children and in this work is about teaching my children to love and resist simultaneously, that they're both needed. And the love is really the love of their blackness, the love of themselves, the love of their history, their culture, the love of their brilliance, right? So that they love themselves so much that I affirm them so much in their blackness and black culture and just all things black, 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 right? We, we chant, I love being black. I love my hair. I love my skin. You know, I love our resilience. That the, the love of blackness, right? The belief that black lives matter is not a question, right? Like, yeah, we matter. And so having that strong grounded belief and loving upon themselves that then when anything is contrary to that, right? When systems, when racism, when they experience people that say things that are counter to that narrative of like, no, I love myself and being black is beautiful and I'm black and I'm proud. When anything comes up against that, that they feel this level of like resistance, right? That they will resist anything that tells them otherwise, that they will resist an institution that says, oh, your history is not needed in the school books, right? That my child will be like, hey, you're missing a part of this history lesson. What about this? That they feel this, this fire burning within them. They love themselves so much, right? We have to be rooted in that Black love um, so that anything that, that says something else, they're like, what? Like that? That's not the truth. And that's some bullshit. And I have something to say about that. So the way that I would say how to talk to your children about these issues or about these challenges is to first make sure they're rooted in love and not in fear, because that's my original conversations were rooted in fear. And I was actually victim blaming, right? Black folks in the way that I was talking about it, right? If I'm telling my son that Trayvon Martin was murdered because he had on a hoodie and so you can't wear a hoodie, that means that I'm blaming Trayvon Martin for his own death. In, in reality, I need to be saying it's not about what you wear. It's not about what you're doing. It's not about you being black, right? It's a system that's against black people. And it's not about you changing anything about yourself. It's not about you trying to code switch. It's not about you changing anything. I want him to be unapologetically black and be able to identify the systems, the people, the institutions that are intentionally trying to uproot him because of his blackness, right? That's kind of the evolution I've had to have um, from shifting from like doing this out of fear to keep him safe and protect him and really shifting to this idea that in order for him to survive and thrive, that I need to teach them to love themselves and resist anything that doesn't, that tells them that they're not worthy of that self-love. Trina, you mentioned the like burden being placed on Black people, uh, particularly like you and Jamila who are out there and have, I think, a platform to like do the work for white people. And I, I mean, to that, I can just say there's a million internet resources, so Google them. But how are you guys taking care of yourselves in this also? Because it seems like being confronted every day with, yes, the negative, but also like it, it seems like there is some trauma in also turning on the news and seeing people have to be yelling Black Lives Matter. And you talked about how you dealt with that with your children, but also having to have these conversations, I think for you can be traumatic. So can you give advice to like our Black listeners about how to provide some self-care for themselves during this time? Yeah, it's a good question. That is one of the foundational elements of parenting for liberation, right? 
our work is really grounded in this idea that parents doing our own work around healing from our own trauma and healing um, from our experience of being black in the United States, that there's some healing work that we need to do. And so we do definitely support black parents in host holding space. So we have done things since since the pandemic, we've hosted a lot of virtual care sessions for black parents. We've hosted sessions that are about creating affirmations and mantras for black parents. We've created spaces around grief, right? And grieving the loss. And we had a whaling circle a couple of weeks ago um, after all of this. And so we create space, intentional space for black parents to really tap into their own care. And we do that in community because we know that it's not about only self-care, that we have to actually be really rooted in community care. Mm. Um, And then we actually started a Care for Caregivers um, Wellness Fund where we actually were matching black parents and caregivers with black um, healing practitioners so they can get one-on-one sessions. And as soon as we opened up the applications, like we were we were tapped out within the first like seven days. And so that really was has been impactful, I think, for parents to create practices that they can sustain themselves because this is a long shot game, right? Some folks are just entering into this to this work or really first entering into this conversation around Black Lives Matter and we've been living it. And so we want to make sure that Black folks, Black parents specifically, have the space to actually care for themselves so that they can show up for their children as whole liberated beings themselves. So yeah, we definitely center the healing work of Black parents. We're going to link to parentingforliberation.org, which is Trina's site. And there are some amazing resources here. I'm newly being introduced to your work, but in general, I have not been a consumer of a lot of parenting content. The stuff that came across organically on occasion typically was directed toward Black parents, but the parenting space is not you know, there are not enough of our voices here, which is why I was excited to be asked to join this podcast and Slate's parenting team, essentially. But on the flip side, even when there were things that were directed t- toward Black parents, I often, um, I don't know, I think it, it perhaps was me holding on to the vestiges of youth as best I could. And so like, not wanting to like dive into, you know, in my self-care time, um, when I'm thinking of myself, that I wasn't going into parenting work. You know, I wasn't thinking of parenting. I was thinking of other things. And so I'm really excited. I see that you're 39 episodes into the Parenting for Liberation podcast. And I want to listen to every single one of them because each one sounds more fascinating than the last. So I'm grateful to know that you are here. And I'll just say that for me, I think that because I'm sure Trina, to some extent, you you would agree with this as well. When your work is connected to these themes, in addition to just our experiences being rooted, you know, we've been black our whole lives. So there's a level to which this isn't as this is this moment is a shock to the system, but it's not that much of a shock considering all the precedent. But uh, when your work is connected to talking about race or gender um, and, and, and an issue related to race and or gender comes up in the media and becomes a flashpoint for all these national conversations, it feels like you don't get a break. It went from constantly being present to 360 degrees of just emergence. So my parenting schedule allows me self-care um, in ways that a lot of other parents don't have. And I always acknowledge that that is a privilege. And it's something that for our family is part of our strategy for parenting for liberation, that my daughter divides her time in half between myself, her dad, and her stepmother. And so when I am off from her, And I allow myself time to be off from working or the stress of caring for other people or the constant folks that, you know, I need support and, you know, I need someone to talk to and 
you know, which so many of us women, particularly black women, but I think this is a common mother experience that people call you when they need to talk or when they need, you know, some healing. I tune all the way out, you know, and sometimes it's, it's a very short amount of time. So it may only be a 30 minute nap um, where I'm just reading my horoscope or, you know, reading a book for pleasure. It, it may be a little bit longer, but I go out and I, I just give myself time away from everything that is a stressor. You know, if it's putting my phone on do not disturb to just read my book and eat my little lean cuisine and peace is doing that. If it's taking the time to cook myself a meal, I'm really going to enjoy or cook for the both of us. And then during that time, I'm not looking at my phone and I'm not watching the news and I'm not consuming anything. I'm just out of it. I'm just here. I'm just present, you know, by myself or just present with my child. And obviously, the fact that many of us are still are or still should be living under uh, shelter in place rules right now has made certain acts of self-care a bit more difficult. But just having that time away, I think also driving for me, since it's one still kind of a new thing in my life um, as a West Coast transplant and two that because you can't go to as many places when you get outside of the car as you once could, like that time in the car is valuable. So sometimes it's just me and some music and I'm just off. That's beautiful. Thank you. Do it all. All the stuff you named is so important. Um, when you do this work that it's like you need in the space to turn off. And I definitely resonate with that. It was because of the work I was doing and the like violence against women's movement and youth organizing work that pulled me into this parenting work because I became a parent and I was trying to like practice my values and my organizing principles. And I was just so misaligned. Like I was coming home saying, no, you can't do this. Stop doing that. I was just like, oh, I was like, but I'm at work talking about young people have voice and young people have agency and young people have power. And I was just not living my values. So I was like, I'm going to make a commitment to practice liberation in my parenting and then boom, parenting liberation. And so I don't know, I got to figure out my way of like, how do I turn this off? Um, Because parenting is a 24, seven, seven days a week. I do have the privilege of also co-parenting across multiple households. And so whenever this COVID thing kind of settles and he can return to those, you know, those weekly rotations, I'll have more space to be able to like check out. You know, I think we do deserve the moment to check out. It's a lot being on 24-7. Okay. Thank you, Letter Writer. Uh, We hope that that was helpful for you. Nickelodeon's got your preschoolers covered from sunrise to bedtime with four brand new podcasts. Grab their backpack and go on a culinary quest with Dora's Recipe for Adventure. Make game time great time with Let's Guess Who with Josh and Blue. And tuck in for adventure with Nickelodeon's Goodnight Bedtime Stories. Plus, we've got a brand new season of Storytime with Josh and Blue. Search Nickelodeon on your favorite podcast app to listen. And we're going to move on to our second listener question, which is again being read by Shasha Leonard. Dear Mom and Dad are Fighting. My two-year-old son is obsessed with all things related to cars and trucks. He loves to talk and is learning so much right now, which means he has a million questions and my husband and I are struggling with one in particular. With everything going on in the world and everything we know and are learning about police brutality and the militarization of police forces, how can we explain what police officers do when teaching our young son? Up to this point, We identify police cars, and he likes to point them out on walks, as we see them often. But we really haven't said much else about them. We live in an area that has been hard hit by wildfires in recent years, and so he has lots to say about fire trucks and firefighters. Fire trucks save the day. Fire trucks help people. Firemen fight fires to keep people safe. 
However, my husband and I are in agreement that we do not think it is appropriate to use the words heroes or helpers when referring to police cars or police officers. Of course, some are. But we've been horrified by some of the actions we've seen during recent protests and heartbroken by the seemingly unending string of violence towards unarmed black men and women. As he gets older, we'll talk to him about more of the nuances, but do you have any advice about language we can use with him now that that seems appropriate? My concern is that there may be a situation where we do need him to trust a police officer if, heaven forbid, we were all in a terrible car accident or needed to go through another wildfire evacuation. But we are struggling to find words that will make sense to a toddler that we feel are accurate. Thanks for any ideas or advice you can give. Sincerely, Mom to a Mini Vehicle Fanatic. I feel like I really empathize with some of the things that this letter writer talks about. I have talked before about my experience and the kids' experience with that with the police are fundamentally different. And some of that comes from um, having lived in the Netherlands, which, although still riddled with racial problems, has more of like a peace officer system and only some of the officers are allowed to use force. So just kind of a different structure and that's kind of viewed differently. And in fact, like uh, a couple years ago, they, they actually disarmed all traffic police, just saying that it was unnecessary and, and that's worked out pretty well for them. But that has informed like my view on this. And so I am very interested in how to address this because my boys do like to play police and I always try to put an end to it. And we've talked about the violence that is happening, but she brings up good points that like police are still part of the system. So I'm kind of interested in the conversation that happens here because I'm at this point in parenting too, and I'm am, am not entirely sure other than just telling them the truth about what's happening, how to proceed forward. I mean, isn't there also, I look at this question and I see there's a bunch of like aesthetic stuff that we all deal with as parents. We were talking about gendered clothing and sort of like the things that kids are sort of naturally gravitating to. And there certainly is a lot of police stuff in toys and marketing aimed at kids, boys in particular. I think about Lego and I think about all the yeah. the ways in which, you know, cops sort of manifest themselves through play. And one of the things that I keep thinking about is how different cops look now versus how they looked when I was a kid. I'm not saying that like things were good then because they weren't. However, I saw this video the other day that was supposed to be one of those like uplifting everything is going to be okay videos on social media where a young black girl saw a cop and immediately burst into tears and the cop who was a white woman pulled over and sort of comforted her and said, I'm here to protect you and I'm your friend or whatever. And I'm like, A, it's problematic that those videos become like the symbol of hope or whatever. But B, I was just looking at this cop in this video, this woman who was saying nice things to someone in her community, but who was dressed like a soldier. She was, you know, a traffic beat cop wearing a huge Kevlar vest, a huge belt, his tactical sunglasses. She looked like four times as wide as her body probably was. and. I have been concerned also seeing some of that tactical police militarized aesthetics or trickle down into toys as well. And I think with a little kid who's two, having the conversations that, you know, we talked about are important, being honest, infusing everything you talk about with conversations about racism and uh, social justice. But when they're attracted to something because of the aesthetic, that's also a good place to start. I mean, I keep thinking about how if a Lego set like 
you know, what they call a bear cat, which is actually an armored vehicle, was something that one of my kids wanted, I could say, okay, look at that. Let's talk about why that's not a toy I want you to play with, because that actually opens up a conversation about what police need, what they don't need, how they look, how they sort of appear in public. So that's just this question was making me think about. I think a lot of the answer is similar to what we just talked about in terms of just being Mm -hmm. honest early and often and knowing that it is a privilege to be able to choose to have the conversation about whether or not police are good or bad, because for a lot of kids... There is no choice. Their view of the police and their experience with them is so different. But I do wonder with a kid this young who's looking at it from this aesthetic point of view, whether or not that might be an entry point to have conversations about guns and militarization and equipment and, you know, play acting, you know, what those interactions should look like versus what they do and talking about it through play might actually be kind of an interesting approach. I could be completely off base, but that's what I was thinking about when I first read this question. I think that, yes, that using the example, you know, being able to point to toys and and being able to point to um, things in the media uh, that are designed for children and saying, look at this. This is not something you would want in your community. Wouldn't you be afraid if you saw a, a vehicle that looks like this driving behind us? Wouldn't you be afraid if you saw officers wearing these guns, you know, walking through a shopping mall or or walking, you know, into the grocery store or harassing you on the street. And then using that as an entry point to talk about like how the police actually function. And I'd say, I think that parents, uh, non-black parents should be having conversations about the police, much like the ones that black parents have with our children. So many of us have have been taught and, and many of us have taught our children about the evil of the police, about the danger, about the threat on an immediate level and on a systemic level, while also still raising our children so that if they're involved in a car accident in a situation in which there is no alternative but to engage with the police, that they know how to function with them. There's a very high probability that they're gonna be uncomfortable. Even for those of us that oppose code switching, still understanding that you, you have every right to have a contentious attitude toward the police. However, if you are involved in a traffic accident in which you're going to have to get a police report, you have to be able to politely engage with this person, right? So that you can get through the encounter. If you are pulled over, you have to be able to, you know, these are some things that you can do to perhaps minimize the risk of detainment. And we can't guarantee that. And there, you know, police do what they want to do, essentially, that they are lawless in in many ways, not even lawless. They are bound by laws that protect them, you know, and and protect their ability to rule over communities. And I think as white parents begin to have that conversation with their children, it's important that you emphasize the privilege that they have and knowing that it is a lot more likely that a friendly cop will let you off with a warning or perhaps may treat you with kindness um, as opposed to a person of color. However, the police are increasingly hostile to white folks, too. At this point, they feel under attack. They feel that it is us against them. It is the world versus police. And they're showing themselves. And it, it's I'm glad that everybody else can see what we've seen, finally, that this is not a system that works in the best interest of the masses and that our need for 
protection and order and safety is not being met by this body of people, if the money that was invested in putting them in those Bearcats and putting them in those militarized costumes was invested in actually solving crimes, not just property crimes, um, and actually making communities safer, that their lives would be better too. Solving problems. Solving problems. Yeah. Like so many of the things that cops are called for right now are not crimes. They are prob- like small problems. Yeah. I mean, a lot of white folks use um, 911 like a personal complaint line. Like I'm just calling, I'm calling the manager, right? The police are the managers. I'm calling the manager. This person is not where I think they should be. They're not doing what I think they should do. And I'm call, I've called my manager because they've been show allowed up with to guns. show up with guns. <laughs> and because they believe themselves to be the manager, they've been allowed to be the manager because they can solve this issue however they see fit. And it, it does not result in, in safety or justice. And if your community is not one that has a lot of, you know, what is recognized as crime or violence, it's easy to be blissfully unaware of, of how the police function in, in larger places, in most places. Um, but they're not a good institution. And I think it's okay to tell your children that you're not going to destroy their childhood. You're not going to make them fearful, you know, to the point where they're not able to function, you know, that they're, let them know that their privilege is something in a toolkit that they may have to use on behalf of other people, that they may need to be the person who sees something going on with a black, you know, peer or even with a black adult. And that they are, they may be in a position to say, officer, that's not what happened you know, I need to step in and protect this person. They also need to be prepared for the possibility that the police are going to treat them with contempt and rudeness and entitlement. And that's why we don't buy police Legos. We don't buy police nothing. I mean, how can you argue with that? So what you're talking about is the the role of police, right? And as the conversation has expanded to talking about defunding the police or like abolishing the police state, you know, like that, those are the questions that I want to be in conversations with people about. And that's the conversation that I think parents should be having right now. It's like, what is the role? Their role is to protect and serve, but to protect and serve who? Like, who were they created for, right? And when we talk about the history of policing in the United States, it's deeply embedded in slave patrol, right? It's deeply embedded in the history of like trying to keep black folks who they felt like did not deserve to be free, fugitive slaves or runaways, right? Like their job originally was to capture black folks. And so in that regard, like that's the origin story or like that's the kind of origin story of the policing state. And so so it's deeply connected to these questions about like who are they who are they sworn to protect and serve? They're sworn to protect and serve white supremacy and maintain the current system. It's never been intended to maintain mm-hmm. the safety of black and brown folks. Um, and as you said, like right now, white folks are also experiencing like, oh, it wasn't actually <laughs> made to preserve you. It's made to preserve the state. They're sworn to maintain law and order. But then the question is that we should ask is like, what laws are they are they asked to maintain? And who were the laws created for? Right. The laws were never meant to serve you know, black people or brown people. Right. And so so those are the conversations. I think um, in terms of talking to your child about it, there are like all these conversations about how do we um, shift um, to talking about who actually keeps the community safe. Like, I don't think as a black person, I've never held the belief even growing up as someone who's indirectly impacted by by incarcer- mass incarceration and, and like over policing and the war on drugs. Cause I'm an eighties baby who was in Los Angeles, right? Like my family was deeply impacted by the war on drugs and the over policing. So I've never seen cops or police as something that was helpful, right? I saw it as something that tore up my family and tore up our communities. A conversation that I had with someone on the podcast was about 
a murder that happened nearby their home and they have to talk to their six-year-old about policing and their child actually engaged in a conversation around visioning what the world would be like if we didn't have police, if police resources were actually diverted. And this is a conversation that they had in like 2016, right? So these conversations have been happening. So instead of being like, read all these resources going to policing, which hasn't been working, actually trying to understand what is the underlying unmet need, right? Like homelessness isn't isn't something that we can police our way out of. Poverty is not something we can police our way out of. Domestic violence is not something we can, like none of these, the solutions aren't police and jail, right? You know, kids can imagine new things. Kids can imagine, can tell your child the problem and ask them what they think the solution would be. And I'm imagining police would not be on the top of the list. So, you know, that's the kind of conversation that I would want to invite parents to engage their children in because there are alternatives that we need to be thinking about and centering in this moment. I just want to make a quick recommendation based on what you just talked about, Trina, about the origins of policing in America. This is a great opportunity. People are always asking, like, what can I read? What can I do? Well, one thing you can do is you can listen to a podcast called uh, Throughline from NPR. There's an episode called American Police. It'll take an hour of your life and you will learn everything you need to know. Not everything, but most things you need to know for you to have a foundational understanding of the origins of policing in America. And if you know it, it's a little easier to understand why it's important to have these conversations with your white kids. Absolutely. Thank you so much, letter writers, for your questions. And as a reminder, our show relies on questions from you, our listeners. So if you have something that you want to hear on the show, please send it in. Send us an email to momanddad at slate.com. Trina, thank you so, 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 so much, my sister, for joining us today. Uh, it means a lot. We really appreciated your voice and your perspective. And there's a link to Parenting for Liberation in our show notes. So everyone, please check out Trina's work and follow her. Thank, Thank you. you. And I should also name, I'm going to plug that I'm a new author and my book comes out on Juneteenth. It's called Parenting for Liberation, A Guide to Raising Black Children. Yes. So also pick that up at a Black-owned bookstore or a feminist bookstore. And if, you know, there's other chains that also carry the book, but definitely encouraging folks to pick that up. Thank you so much. And congratulations on the book. I'm looking forward to getting my own copy of it as well. Thank you. And now it is time for recommendations. Elizabeth, what do you have for us? So mine is a two-parter. You know, I love podcasts and we use them so much for our family. And since Dan's not here, I can recommend another podcast that's not ours. I am recommending for kids. It's a podcast called So Get Me from the Grammy-nominated children's hip-hop group Alphabet Rockers. They only have five episodes that they put out in 2019. And I'm not sure if there's going to be another season, but these are like a great way to have a conversation about race and about um, social injustice and about um, trans people and just all of those topics they talk about here with fun music and kids and in a just like really fun way. And they also like sort of teach the kids how to practice intervening. And it is just an absolutely joy thing to listen to um, with your kids. And my kids have responded like so well to it. And if you're nervous about how to bring up this topic um, or any of these or don't know where to start, these five episodes are great and a good way to do that. And then for adults, I am recommending something actually that Jamila, I got off of your Instagram that you had posted called the Black History Bootcamp from Girl Trek. And I do encourage you to go sign up for their emails. But if that seems like too much, 
Just download the podcast. Each episode is 30 minutes about a woman in Black history. You'll find a couple names that you know, a lot of names that I was completely unfamiliar with. And I have found so many wonderful women that fit into the curriculum that we're teaching that I'm like, I got to add this in. I got to find resources on her. I got to teach the kids about her. And they do such a great job of making it like a fun, entertaining conversation. I think the um, goal is like to get out and walk while you're listening to it. And I have used that as my kind of impetus to say like, I need to get out of the house for 30 minutes, listen to this podcast for me and go for a walk. I just have found it completely lovely, enlightening and educational. So Jamila, thank you. That was a recommendation you gave to me that I'm now <laughs> sharing with everyone. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Every I love Girl Trek. Yeah, they have a ton of stuff. So definitely don't just stop at the at the podcast and the, the emails in the morning are like a wonderful way to start your day and know what's ahead and be kind of focus your day on a woman in black history that did something amazing to kind of inspire you for the day. Go on, Elizabeth. Rebecca? Yeah, mine is totally trash compared to Elizabeth's, but um, I'm just going to go in boldly. Anyone to listen to this podcast back when I used to be on it knows that I think one of the best ways to spend time with your teenagers especially, but I think you can go as young as like 10, 12 with some of these trash things that I love, is to watch really, really bad TV shows on obscure networks like the Science Channel and True TV. And we just discovered a bananas one that's been on enough seasons where there's like plenty of episodes to watch it's called strange evidence and it's this crazy tv show where they show a video of some quote you're gonna see me do scare quotes phenomena like an orb flying across you know a security camera or like a person who steps on something and it explodes but they're mysteriously fine and then they have a panel of you know two ways with experts talking about what the phenomena could be and it goes in the craziest kind of like side directions that it's just hilarious lots of earnest ex like biologists making rhetorical statement questions like could this be real could it be something planted by the cia like it's the kind of thing you could imagine watching and making a great drinking game out of but it's also just really fun to watch with teenagers and actually kevin and i watched an episode the other night together too <laughs> it's just so stupid and it's on my category of shows of course we love catfish on mtv another one we love is this ufo one uh ancient aliens that's for some reason on the history channel yes why is it on the history channel I don't know. tons of rhetorical questions you know it's just insanely bad but it's so bad that it's kind of great and a really, really fun half hour, like juicy time, you know, maybe after dinner or whatever you want to like something escapist and super stupid where you're all laughing at something together. I really can't recommend this really dumb show, Strange Evidence, enough. And there's plenty of it on. So you've got like lots and lots of episodes to laugh about. Just one thing I'll say is that my son Henry has pointed out that a couple of the episodes, if the experts on them just Googled what happened, it's very obvious because there have been like news reports about it. <laughs> there was one where a guy, you know, ran through a parking lot naked and threw himself through a car windshield and was mysteriously unharmed. And I have all these experts being like, is he a human terminator? Has he been infected with a bacteria that makes him not feel pain? And Henry is like, no, he's on bath salts. There was a news story about it like two days later in the local TV station. Um, so anyway, I really recommend the show. It's dumb, escapist, and really, really fun. But also apparently promotes critical thinking. So that's good. <laughs> 
<laughs> but does I it? I did fall into like, a, <laughs> but does it? Yeah, exactly. And ancient air, uh, and like accidental ancient aliens marathon in a hotel room one time, like alone, you know, traveling alone for work, like come back to the hotel room. It was on. And I was just like, I'm in whatever this is. I'm in for episode after episode of this. So my friend Marsha Clark, who is a like, tenured professor of African-American studies at Georgetown, was on that recent History Channel documentary Grant about Ulysses S. Grant. And we're, we turned in, we watched her on it, and I was texting her and I was like, you know what, until you're on Ancient Aliens, this means nothing to me. <laughs> this means nothing. Ancient Aliens is the show to be on. It's so stupid and so magnificent and great. Oh my gosh. If you are going to be watching fun shows, as many of us have been doing at night, or watching unfun shows like the news, you're probably going to be having a glass of wine or two or three while you watch. And so I'd like to recommend one of my favorite wine brands. It's the McBride Sisters Collection. They have a really interesting story. These two sisters were raised across the world from one another, didn't know that they, you know, that one another existed. So one was raised in New Zealand and one was raised in California. And they found each other, I believe, as young adults and found that they both had a serious passion for wine. And they have since launched the, I think, largest African-American wine label in the country. So, and their wines are quite good. They have a really nice Riesling and they also have a collection called the She Can Collection and it comes in a can. Some of the proceeds from the She Can Collection go into the McBride Sisters She Can Professional Development Fund, which promotes the professional advancement of women in the wine industry. And they've given out some $40,000 in scholarships to women through that fund thus far. So check out McBrideSisters.com. I actually was introduced to them by my daughter's stepmother, who sent me a few of their bottles of wine for Mother's Day this year. Very nice. Good stuff. Well, ladies, uh, thank you all so much for another great episode. We had a lot to discuss today, and hopefully the conversation that we had was helpful uh, listeners for you and your families. We're grateful to Trina Green-Brown for joining us and to you all for listening. So... One more time, if you have a question, please email us at slate.com and join us on Facebook. Just search for Slate Parenting. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson for Elizabeth Newcamp and Rebecca Lavoy. I'm Jamila Lemieux. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.